Hello, innovators, explorers, and risk takers. Welcome to another episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast. And on today's podcast, I am interviewing Max. Max is an engineer and an AI expert. And today in this conversation, Max and I, we go through and explore the whole AI landscape. What do we find exciting in it and what things we need to be cautious about? He shares his insights on generative technologies, the balance between AI hype and skepticism, and the future of programming. Max also dives into the complexities of consciousness and the philosophical dimensions of AI. Join us for this captivating conversation that sheds light on the promise and limitations of artificial intelligence. Nothing mentioned in this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Take this podcast only for learning about artificial intelligence and its possibilities and limitations. Finally, I do not run any ads on this podcast. My only ask is that you share this episode on your social media. With that out of the way, let's get into it. So Max, it's great to have you on the show. So looking forward to dwelling a bit more onto the AI side of things. So for some of our audience who are not familiar with your background, your story, can you please share with us about how you got into, into AI and into yeah what you're doing currently? Oh man, the whole story. This is getting, it's starting to get long, longer and longer the older I get. <laughs> but I'll try to start at the beginning of my career, which is really sure. the most interesting. I did I did computer science undergrad and it was a lot of fun. I took some machine learning classes, really liked it. But my first couple jobs out of out, out of undergrad, it was really hard to work on those types of problems. So I was a software engineer back in the day. I was doing C++, Java, JavaScript, that kind of stuff. And I just I wasn't getting into it the way that I that the, the way that I should have been. And so I think at the time around 2008, I did what it wasn't like the economy was so great. So I did yes. what anyone does. I don't know what to do. I went to went back to school and then I, I went to NYU this time. I, I, my undergrad was at, was at Yale. So I got, it was really tough, really engaging like computer science stuff. And then I think to go into some of those jobs, it was, it didn't, yeah. wasn't doing it for me. So my, my grad school program was half, half business and half, half computer science to, to do a little bit more of that on the grad school level. And th at that point, I decided, okay, if I can have a graduate level education in kind of machine learning and statistical type uh, problems, then maybe I could start to do it professionally. And, yes. and also to find something that was more interesting to me because it, I had a variety of interests. And I, it, I know a lot of people have uh, very different views on, on grad school, but for me, that was, a, that was an excellent decision actually uh, to go back to school because... I got to, I started off at, at Stern, which is NYU's business school. And I took uh, courses on emerging technology with a professor I really liked. I took a course on, on data mining, which was my first taste back into machine learning. And then I went back to the computer science department and I took machine learning with Jan LeCun, which is, is a name that, that you might've heard before. He's, he's a, a long time image recognition uh, researcher and machine learning researcher, uh, a pioneer in convolutional neural nets. And it was, and, and I basically got my intro to ML again from him and that from his class. And that was, that was really exciting. And so at the same time, I, I was also, I had a side project called Sticky Map, which was like the Google Maps API came out. I did that under, as an undergrad, people would post little markers all over the map and add their information. I really loved kind of products like that, where people would yes. come on and use it. And it was social and it was everybody contributing. And 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 it was just a project that, that people could use. I was always into maps. I was always into local search. I, had yeah. a, I also had a job in there that I was doing it. So when I found Foursquare, it was like a perfect fit. Foursquare was at the time known as the check-in app. It was a game. People would create venues, check-in, and essentially it was coming out of NYU at the time. It was an NYU company. Dennis Crowley was at NYU. And I, I reached out to him, I think in 2010. And I was like, I'm really into this stuff. Check out my side project. Uh, do you have, do you guys, and then he, he said, are, are you a machine learning expert by any chance? And then I knew I hadn't done it professionally yes, yet, but I was like, y yes, I am. <laughs> I was like, let's, let's do it. And so I, I got started there. I wasn't 
I, since I already had a job, I wasn't, I wasn't like the most junior engineer, but yes. I wasn't like the most, most experienced either. I had three years of experience in, in grad school. So it was something and they were Scala shops. So I, I learned Scala and actually got really into that language. I have lots to say about functional programming as well and programming language and style philosophy, which is what I'm doing now. And I got to work on their recommendation engine. And then I started looking into all the tips and reviews that people are writing on Foursquare and natural language processing, such natural language is like such an interesting thing. And of course, that's stuff that we can do that machines can do with natural language is of course, all the rage today. I was making little algorithms on that, like statistical NLP and, and was able to build lots of features and, and products in the Foursquare ecosystem. So that was, that was really exciting. That, that sort of those first few years at Foursquare, maybe 2011, I was just getting going, but maybe 2012 to really the whole time. But like the first couple of years were really formative because I was really able to have the space to look at data and be like, what products can we build? Okay, let's build it. And yes. at the time that was a startup and they were like, great, ship it, put it in our, put it in our app. And it was, that was very exciting. Then I had other phases in that company. I worked at their innovation lab for a while. I worked on the enterprise data side for a while. We could talk about that, but that was a little different. So yeah, but, that's, I think that's a good origin. I think that's my origin story. I don't know how long I took there, but. Uh, that, that's, no, that's good. That's really good. Okay. Uh, I have so many questions. <laughs> like, especially I want to talk about, I do remember using Foursquare. I do remember people used to become mayor of this place and all that. Oh, and yeah. it was, it they was still, great. They still do on Swarm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and it's yeah, great a little for, less. for encouraging like social contribution. And that's the thing that you, and you talked about recommendation engines and we have come such a long way, even in that, in recommendation engines and stuff. And now everyone is going, moving away from the social graph in social products or like social media products to a recommendation engine based product or an interest graph. I don't know if that's even a word or that industry uses, but that's how I see it. That, that because humans are, they change over time. Our interests change, our political beliefs change, our um, affiliations change, the clubs that we join change, media that we consume changes over time. And it's like so many people weren't able to relate to the people they connected with on Facebook in 2006 to 2019. The world had changed so right. much that you, Especially the posts were... Yeah, the posts were not relevant. And that's where the recommendation engine of TikTok was so good because it's they don't care who you follow, who your friends are. They just show you whatever you are interested in. If you stay on a video longer, that's great. That means you like it. And we'll just show you more of that. It's such a simple concept to understand now, which was so foreign back then. And what are your views on like recommendation engines? And where do you see the industry going from that point of view? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I used to be really plugged into the Rexis community. In fact, that, that first course that I took at NYU that I told you about, Emerging Technology, that the professor was Alex Tuzilin, and he is his, that's his main field, the recommender systems, and he's one of the maybe creators or organizers of the AMC conference Rexis. And so I went there three times and I presented three times. I'm not saying this to go into background stuff. I'm just trying to relate it back to my experiences because... One of the things I loved about that conference was everybody had different ideas about what recommendations should be and what they should be doing. Whether a lot of talks were like, how important is context? I would oftentimes my, my, I think all of my presentations pretty much, well, except for one were about time. How do we incorporate time? Whether it's, whether it's trends or, but then you have to ask how long-term are those trends? Are yeah. these heartbeat trends or these things like something that you want to recommend at three in the morning versus three in the afternoon or, or something you want to recommend in the summer as well as the winter, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I really liked those kind of time-based recommendations, but one of the, one of the most interesting ideas that I've got from that, and again, I haven't been plugged in for, for several years there is like the interestingness of a recommendation is important because there's a lot of there's a lot of times when you build something and even if it's dumb, people are like, wow, your recommendation system is so smart. And then you ask it what it did. It's yeah, that was either like a lucky guess or yeah. it just knew something very, but people read into it a lot more. But yes. what you really want to find is the, you really want to find a recommendation that's not so obvious, not so dead on, but something that is like a little bit, a little bit of a stretch 
for the person to be like, okay, this is something that we think you might be interested in, but it also is going to increase your sphere of knowledge, increase your sphere of knowledge. Yeah. Not like yes. literally it could be a recommendation system for courses. I'm not going to take my 10th course in the same thing, but it's, Hey, here are all these other courses that are adjacent that you can unlock. And then it's the same thing if you're recommending restaurants or books or Anything. anything like that. And that yeah. is so funny because I remember like back in the days, there was the joke that I bought a toilet seat for my toilet. And then now Amazon thinks that I collect toilet seats and for the next three months is giving me toilet seat. <laughs> That's yeah. a one-off uh, purchase. You don't need it. Or you want a yeah, toaster. Yeah. It's what I'm going to buy 20 toasters. <laughs> I've already right. bought it. Why are you giving me recommendations on it? It's, I thought about that problem. That's one of the perennial unsolved problems. And I, I almost feel like Maybe the algorithms aren't that good and the best they could do is sometimes people rebuy things. So probably you're probably more likely to buy a, a toilet seat from Amazon than the average person. So that's like yes. the best we can do. And I, I get things that I've gotten all the time and it doesn't make sense because if there were a human in there, a human could do so much better figuring out what to recommend me. And it seems it's like we have machines like, that are smart, yeah. should be smarter, but I don't know. I don't know why they're, I don't know why they're not. It could just be a problem where... Fixing that problem is just not worth their time. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I think I know what it is. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm guessing because yeah. some people have buyer's remorse and then they buy another product and because they find something mm. even better. And yeah. and there are people who are like, we don't yeah. probably, you and I don't shop compulsively like that and don't, but there are people who yeah. hold things and who buy same type of thing over and over again and they have 20 of the same right. type of thing in their house so well, maybe amazon has stepped into that that we haven't that we don't know because they are their lifestyle is so different from ours that we cannot even comprehend being yeah. like that maybe and, i don't and, know and look what if your other toilet seat broke and yes. you saw this recommendation you're like i need to get this done my my last time i bought this it worked so yes. then it's it'll be like there's probably like a one in one in a thousand chance of that but still yes. like, <laughs> that one in a thousand they're getting the sales yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the, if i can add another issue yes. sorry go ahead no no uh, go ahead go ahead i'll, I'll ask you after that I another yeah. issue that i've been thinking about with recommendation systems for the last two years and it's still coming up is it's not just like the technology of it but it's the it's the business model of it it's the idea is it was like okay can you build a recommendation engine that's designed to look out for the interests of the person that it's recommending to. And if you think about it, most of the time that alignment isn't there, like the, the recommendation engine is trying to recommend something that's in the interest of the company. They're trying to sell you something. They're yes. trying to manipulate you. And it's, is it possible to create a, a business model where, yes, you could build a recommender system that is looking out for the interests of the user, but is that what's going to be funded? Is, is that what's going to win in the marketplace? And I would love more ideas on that, on, on how to actually, how to actually bring the pieces together to to get something that frankly we could be proud of that actually improves our lives uh because i know i might not be an impulsive buyer yes. in that sense but i know that i can be i could be manipulated by the power of suggestion and it's very hard to it's very hard to let not let these algorithms creep into your lives more and more people are recognizing it and it's just how can we fix it i don't have a good answer but i just want your audience to to think about that and let me know if you have any ideas. Yes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's a, that's a moral question rather than tech question is we've got the tech. Are we gonna use the recommendations to to get people to consume more or are we get get them to make better choices in life exactly. that are beneficial to them? Yeah, it, it comes down to that. But that's such a yeah, that I don't know if anyone has an answer for that, but yeah, would love to hear. Feel free to share. <laughs> Having said that, I would love to know more about your new startup, newmap.ai or newmap.ai. Can you tell right. me a bit more about it and how does it work? What problems does it solve? Yeah, so it's brand new. I, I don't even have an elevator pitch for it. And when I say brand new, it's five years old. So <laughs> the idea is, so now you're, you're thinking, what the heck? So the, the idea behind that project is at work, the the task is always, particularly in, in a company like Foursquare and most companies is, okay, what can we do to get quick wins? What can we just build what we need for tomorrow? And that's what yeah. that's what most companies do. And that's what you're doing most of the time as, as an engineer and as, as someone in the yes. company. So my initial idea, it was like, okay, what if I have a side project where I just, I do the complete opposite? 
and I say, all right, what if I just, what if I just build like the future system that I want, the system that is, that just does data science and programming the way that, that I would want it to have done and just iterated on it over time. And what I found out was I could probably do that for a hundred years and not launch anything. So now yes. I'm like taking, okay, I'm going to take what I have built on and off for the last five years and try to actually turn it into a, a product. But it, it does several things. And for people who are interested, I, I look forward to making a demo. I'm still working on getting the demo together, but like it, it, it's a new kind of programming language slash data system. And the idea is that a, we're going to version all your data and all your algorithms and all your code. Uh, unlike a, a version repository, like it's literally GitHub. versioning your functions and, and, and versioning your language. Yeah. Using some of the same mm -hmm. principles. And the idea behind that is it's a good, happy medium between functional programming where nothing changes and imperative programming or what the types of languages that data scientists use all the time, which is just overwrite numbers all the time, which is somewhat dangerous sometimes and prevents yes. certain like applications from running and it's strongly typed, which for some reason, data scientists and statisticians are allergic to strongly typed stuff. So it's okay. So let's try to do that. That might make us more efficient. The second part of it. And again, I'm not at the point where at some point I'm going to have a pitch where I'm like, I'm focused on one thing, but this is the phase where I'm like, I have several things that could become. So no, here's the second thing. Explore. It's great yeah. to explore. And exactly. And, yeah, exactly. So the second thing is okay, we have all this version data and, and version code. What if we connect them like in a network where there is a, like where there's a unique way to specify a specific piece of code or specific data set that's on the network. So everybody who's on the network has a, a decentralized ID and maybe there's a giant, a decentralized hash table type of thing, yes. which, you know. Which we'll talk about in the Web3 stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's what if... So what if I have a data set and I'm like, oh, I don't know what algorithm to use, but then all of a sudden I have some code that searches the network and it looks at the shape of my data and it says, oh, here are different things you can download from the network that will work right away. So I think that's just a more efficient way of doing open source software and, and open source data science. And then the third thing it does is because it's so good at versioning and, and forking and basically the idea behind versioning is your data set or your data structure starts off at a certain state and you're giving it commands externally to grow. Yes. And so the idea is, okay, now I don't have jobs that like take 12 hours and then I have to restart it if there's a problem. What if I could just give commands to these jobs as it's going and be like, hey, adjust my hyperparameters or adjust the amount of memory you're using or just the speed, slow down, speed up or whatever. And I, I or maybe, sorry, I gave you an old data set to point you to. Don't keep your model that you have now, but update your pointer to the new data set, that kind of thing. And so the idea is that, and then maybe you could like fork your job. And so it can yes. run in two different ways in parallel. And so the idea is that maybe that would be a much cooler way to do, to do data science and to do inference and to do data pipelines, frankly, data yeah. engineering, so that you can get more, you can make your engineers a lot more efficient. And also basically prevent a, a lot of the time sucks that sometimes happen. So Again, these are largely hopes and dreams. The language is pretty cool. I have, if you're interested in language, like it's open source. So there's basically you go to the test files and you see what it yes. does. It's based on Scala a lot because I really clung to Scala as a language at, at Foursquare. Interestingly, I was inspired by my course in Haskell at, at, at Yale back in the day. That's a name um, I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I, when I was an undergrad, I took that class from Paul Hudak, who the late Paul Hudak, who was one of the one of the creators, and that was just a mind blowing class. As I was like what twenty years old, and it was just like, whoa! I did not know that you could program like that. Yeah, Cardano. So, I think Cardano blockchain uses Haskell. Really? I yeah. did not know that. That's, yeah, I think so. I think so. I could be wrong, but yeah, that raises my view of Cardano in my book. Because particularly if you see an engineering team make a particular decision like that to use a functional language, to me, it's like a, it's like a signal. Oh, these guys are, these guys and gals are, are, are smart and they want to do things properly. I don't, maybe it's the right decision. Sometimes maybe it's not the right decision, but I, uh, at least I know, oh, I have something in common with, with these people. Yes. But, but yeah, I, I have, think those are the yeah. ideas of what new map can do. Oh, that, that is looking very for ideas cool. for demos and stuff. And, and hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have some demos to show off. It, I, can, for help. I can immediately understand the value proposition. 
of new map and it will be so useful just you know how github changed software development forever back in mm. the days version control was a headache and yeah it completely revolutionized how version control was done and stuff and so i can see it at the data level because that's at the functions and the things and the code level it does but if it's at the data level then it's completely yeah. will i don't know make programming and software development exponentially faster over time when it's yeah. adopted uh, but how does a language make money how because it's often open source, like what you're developing, those type of things. How, how do you even monetize it? Yeah, well, that's a good question that I've been asking. Surprisingly, there are examples of languages making money. The Julia is a data science language that's pretty well known. They have, yeah. It's not a huge company, but they have a small company where they do consulting on that. And then there's just the idea of this thing being a, a database in and of itself. Like it's it's essentially a database. You have local instances. You have the world databases. There are lots of companies that are that that rally around databases. The one that I'm thinking of mostly is MongoDB. Yes. I would love to talk to people who who are in that company. I have many years ago. They actually used to work out of the same building as Foursquare, and we use their we use their product. But that's a that's a huge business right now. That is, and and it's also so. I don't think you actually sell access to oh. Like we're going to like the tools for this language is, are, have to be free if people are going to use it, yes. but, but there's value in like consulting on, on using it or trying to get the most value out of it, or perhaps like setting up these instances and databases for companies to maybe serve their API. My only concern, one concern that I have now is our companies, who's going to be like, man, we need this now versus okay, this sounds like a good idea, but I'm really busy. And so that's, I haven't gotten into the point of trying to figure out who's going to say, oh, I really need this now, but that's going to be the the tough the tough road, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that is the tough road because that, that's what I always find that open source tools and open source programming languages, they do so much for humanity, but so hard to monetize. It's like oh, yeah. database businesses and when you are, looking after data for companies, corporates, enterprise, government, all that. Absolutely massive, multi-billion dollar businesses, even in like Decacons or I don't know, they'd be worth hundreds of billions. But programming languages, so hard, even though they solve such big problems. So I, I don't know what's yeah. the answer. And also, I don't want people to monopolize a programming language that no one can code on it without paying money. And so what is the happy medium? Where How do you find that? Yeah, no, I, I don't know the answer. I think my idea here was not to reinvent. It was originally to reinvent a language from scratch. It's like, what language yes. would I like to use? I based it on Scala a little bit. I feel like what's going to happen is that for NewMap, it's really going to be like a, a, a kind of a, a protocol and the language is just how I hook into it. And we might design others specifically for companies based on the tech that they use. So maybe we'll have like one that looks like JavaScript or one that looks like Haskell or something just to just to help just to help companies get involved. It'll almost be like our version of of SQL, which lots of companies have. But the idea is that it's just going to hopefully work in the way that people expect it to work. Uh, yes. I think there's going to be a large design process in that where I'm going to show it to lots of people and they're going to be like, that's ugly. Um, I would think that um, a different symbol should be used for this thing. And hopefully we'll get through a process of of, of design and usability. Uh, but yeah, is this a good business decision? I don't know, but I've always wanted to build a language. So yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, that's, and, and we're, I'm, I'm learning a lot doing it. Oh, that that's fantastic. That is really good to hear. I agree with your take on the programming languages and version control and all that. And it's not something I hear often. What is, what about when it comes to AI? What is your contrarian take on AI? There is so much hype and there's so many people talking about AI these days. What do you think? Yeah. 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 There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of doom. We always have to be careful in our lives to, to ignore the naysayers, but also keep in mind that you, like some people are heaping too much praise. You got to worry about that as well. I think the technology has massive promise, especially the new generative technology, the 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 way I've been thinking now, and I know I've already mentioned this on like other podcasts, but it's really, it, I've been shopping this. It's now you can take what's in your mind and generate whole worlds just by prompting a machine, whether it's images or video or, or text. And it's never been easier to 
take that universe that's in your mind and have it come out. And and it's okay. It's not going to solve all our problems, but for a creative person, it's going to be a a massive boost for someone who needs help achieving flow, as I often do while coding, it's going to be a massive boost for anyone with writer's block or coder's block. It's going to be a massive uh, boost. And so I'm really excited about the latest batch of AI. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, I've been, for years, there's been like this vision of, okay, an AI that knows everything. And I feel like that is almost never going to be, that's never going to be the case. Um, Or is it going to be human level intelligence? It's going to be better at us than some things, not as good as us on other things. So I don't know. And then there's always people who are going to think, wow, the world has changed so much from this. This is like the end of the world. This is the end of history. <laughs> oh, there's totally always fa- been, no, there's yeah, no, been I, I like totally... doomsayers, like since for thousands of yeah. years that the sky is falling yeah. and this is the end. And yeah, actually, I was going somewhere else. I do want to uh, mention that. Whereas <laughs> I, I don't believe it's the end of the world, but there are often people saying this is the end of like human interact like i have no job now which it is scary because a lot of what we used to do as engineers is going to take a lot faster so it's what do we do now but i guess my 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 idea on that is just keep working through it and see what happens because something's always going to present itself and and yeah i don't know that's all i'm gonna say another part is oh i have uh, so much uh, to say about the job sort okay. of thing <laughs> okay yeah. let's do one thing i just want to take a quick break uh, i just want to say that i have so much to say let's do my episode another day but you can still record this as well oh, uh yeah yeah fantastic. because uh, i have so much to say on this topic <laughs> as well let's go so- we, we have a thing next week right yeah yeah we have a thing but next okay. week i will be in um in Singapore for token 2049. So okay. let's do it a week later or sometime, but I'm in no rush. I'm in no rush. Give me a couple of okay. weeks, but yeah, let's continue. Let's continue this okay. conversation. I have so much to say about the jobs thing. There is a huge shortage when it comes to talent in nearly every single country on the planet. There might be unemployment, but there are still so many areas of of shortage for staff for em- employment and any time it's us has gone from 80 percent in farming to less than two percent or even less than one person in involved in farming activities and stuff so it's anytime there is a huge technological innovation it only creates more jobs than less jobs so i don't know where people and on top of that most of the countries in the world or larger countries, except Africa, pretty much all of the world has uh, declining birth rates and they're less than replacement rate, including India. Even India is less than replacement rate, birth rate at the moment, except Africa. As the world gets more well off, we have less kids and society changes, the structure of houses change as less kids die in childbirth and all that. It just changes. So we will have a declining population and more jobs. I think we need more support and more help, not less help. That's just what the data shows that just like people talk about self-driving cars and then we won't need Uber drivers and trucks. But the thing is that so much of the infrastructure needs to change to be bring up to speed so that self-driving cars can function properly in a, in an environment where humans and cars interact, that it will create so much need for the infrastructure that we just don't have enough builders and people like creating the infrastructure that we can keep up for the next 20 to 30 years. So it's just, it's every single time there's new innovation, we get more creative that now it gives so many more people, what do you call permission to become developers who weren't that good developers who become and create more things and more products who will then go and need the marketers to sell it and Add, create, and manage those ad accounts and things like that. So it, it just creates more jobs overall. So I am very bullish. It's never shown that a technological innovation has come about and then suddenly we have 80% unemployment. It, it just has never happened in human history. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think I go back to Econ 101 when there's a there's a, a concept called, shoot, what's that concept in international trade? It's called a, a comparative advantage. Yes. You always find your comparative advantage with respect to the machines and, and yes. that should get you. Yes. And, but I should point out like there, there are going to be some dislocations along the way. And I think over the last year, yes. 
engineers, particularly like big tech engineers, the people at, at Google and and, yes. and Twitter and, and Facebook finally found that, oof, this, this large wave we've been riding, there's been a bump in the wave and a lot of us aren't. And there, for once, there's like a soft job market. And I don't think that's going to last forever. I don't think it's going to even last that long, but it's already starting to come back. But it was like, oh, wow, we can't take this for granted. We've got a, this has lit a fire under a, a lot of, a lot of talented engineers, I think, and people who work in big tech. Oh, absolutely. But even that, I have something to say about that big tech and stuff. It's okay that it's just headlines. It is except Twitter, everything, like a lot of the other things is just headlines. It's okay. Amazon fired 18,000 and it make a big headlines. But during the COVID time and everything, Amazon hired 770,000 people and it fired 18,000. It's still, there's still so many jobs open, whether it's Amazon or Google or Facebook, all of them, they just do that to match the shareholder expectations because that's what shareholders want to see. And they, and those bad headlines make sell news, they sell clicks. So that's why they want to push those headlines and those. And also there were a lot of people not doing or working anything is, does it really does Google really need 200,000 people to run it? That, that is another question. That's, I think, something around that has got the number of people working for it. Probably it doesn't need, it could still run with half or a quarter of the people. And, and that's what we're yeah. all, like, these are all software. It's like you've built a language, you've done so much innovation. You didn't have 10,000 employees. It's just because as the number of people grow, the number of managers and mid-managers and all that and, and the bureaucracy increases that it's a lot of it was unnecessary. And so that's what, that's just realignment. And there are still people who are being offered like four or 500,000 K jobs in, in artificial intelligence and AI and stuff just because of the hype. So it's just the hypes come and go and stuff. Yeah, I think that's just, that's just it. But over time, yes, there will be rebalancing because, but that will allow a lot more software products to be made. Mm -hmm. And then in turn will increase employment again for software developers too, <laughs> because over time you have to include a human for human creativity and making decisions and stuff. Yeah. 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 There's always that top layer. Yeah, yeah, but continue with your contrarian view that you were sharing. On I don't AI. know if it's that contrarian. I think I'm rather moderate on AI. I'm I'm just a generally a cautious, opt cautiously optimistic person. But if I could add one more piece to the puzzle, sure, is that all of the AI models that are getting a lot of the hype right now, and rightfully are related to machine learning, uh, yes. which I love. I I took machine learning. I participated in machine learning. And my current project is related to machine learning, yes. but I feel like there is a non-ML, non-statistical side of AI, which we should really focus on, which is the exactitude of answers and the provenance of answers. And it's almost the difference between doing pure math when you're talking about the exact world, like exact numbers, and then, and then fuzzy math when you're talking about floating point numbers and you're estimating yes. and you're doing statistics. And I think both of them have to work together. And I think if you can get something like an LLM, for example, yeah. to then go into somehow learn how to go into a database and report, okay, these are answers that come from a specific source that I can report or specific calculations that I can do. And then maybe yes. I can relate these to other calculations somehow using category theory or something like that. I think that is the uh, those working together is like the true Holy intelligence. Grail. So and yeah. I think that's, I think it's interesting to even for a machine learning engineer to look at that other side. I, I don't know if like statistical will always be leading, maybe it will, but, but that, that other side of just, which I don't even know what to call it. I just call it like, the, I don't know what to call it either. Basically yeah. it's like AI and then there's a big circle in it that's ML, but anything that's in that ring, that's not the circle. That's the, that's the outside of it. Maybe that includes data engineering as well and that kind of thing. But it's, it's, I, I find that that world very fascinating. And yes. as someone who's, I love mathematics and I like, I like the estimation that the applied mathematics, but I also have a background where I like pure mathematics as well. Why can't we use that? Uh, and so yeah. I, I'm looking in that that's direction. That's exactly my my thought as well, I, I love your point. I love your point, by the way, that most of the AI that everyone is talking about is generated from machine learning and on from data. So it's just a statistical model or the statistical probability of the next word that will come 
or, or the next pixel on the screen for an image that should be there based on what was there before, what's seen in the other data before. It's It doesn't know anything. Like AI doesn't really understand anything. It's just statistics yeah. uh, or, or probability of what should be next. But it, that's why I, I don't see hope for AGI at the moment in the current model for the current, like for AGI to be to be truly present, it's got to understand and then make decisions. And that's how you have AGI. So I don't think the current route leads us to AGI. The current route only leads us to more and more processing needed for better statistical probability. That's what yeah. I feel like. Yeah, I think, I don't know exactly how our own minds work and consciousness that opens up a whole other can of worms, which, which I've gotten into recently, but it's just, our minds are very statistical. They're very stochastic. Yes. We think of random thoughts, we think of ideas, but then on top of it, and I think this is, I think this is like the more highly developed part of our minds is that we start coming up with like more pure concepts, like more platonic concepts of like numbers and symbols and, and definitions that okay, maybe animals don't need to be that specific or, or, but, or, or maybe our, our, our ancestors, not like our recent ancestors, but like long ago, yes. pre hunter gatherer didn't need that. But I think once, once we got into a particular society, need that thought process on top of the statistical thought process. And so it seems like a big part of human level intelligence and, and yeah, I, I it, it's a fascinating concept to explore. Yeah, yeah. You also have quite a few thoughts on philosophy of a AI. Can you sh share mm -hmm. some of that? Some oh, of those? Interesting. I, I, I think I have, there have been a few things that come up recently. It's not necessarily, wouldn't be my biggest uh, uh, question, but a lot of people yeah. uh, think, oh, can I, does AI feel, is it conscious? Can it come alive? And so I started to look into it. I did a few shows on it on the podcast. I've read some books yes. on it. Um, and I basically come to the conclusion that we have no idea what consciousness is or how it's created. And so it seems, it seems like the answer is probably no, because like our mind is hooking into something that causes us to have experiences that we yes. have no idea what the mechanism is. And so I, I think that this is going to be a big issue, like in the coming decades, like people are going to be, if, if there's like a new, if there's a new burst of philosophy and and religious if there's like another great awakening people are going to have to come to terms with what consciousness really is and i don't think i don't think we we have some stories on it we don't have we have not been focusing on it that much in popular culture yet other than oh i've been typing to this thing and i think it became alive which is <laughs> if you actually think about it is ridiculous that i think can't happen i don't know that's my current thoughts on that i think we're going to have to think about what really makes us human, which is an uncomfortable, an uncomfortable conversation to have, but I'm really interested in it. And if anyone has anything else to add, I'd love to have like comments from my podcast or, or potential guests or things like that. Also, like the other philosophical outlook that I have another, which is like a, a different end of the spectrum is just the idea of just the mathematical idea of incompleteness from Girdle. And so that's the idea of prove that no mathematical system can prove everything about itself. Then there's like a computer science version of that, which is the halting problem of the Turing machine, which is we can't tell if a given program is going to halt or not. It's because language and, and computation can be so self-referential that we can't tell what's going on unless we run the system all the way through. And I think that actually gives me hope that there's no, there's no machine, there's no program that's like the end of history, really. It's not, oh, we invented the transformer, and now all mm -hmm. of a sudden our, our deep neural nets are working really well, and that's it. There's never going to be another innovation. It's no way. <laughs> this thing is going to go on and on. So that's another way that I look at it, whereas oftentimes people tend to, and I mentioned this before in the show, but people yes. tend to see these things as like the end of history, and, and it never is. Yes. Yes, very, at least not in a way that we have to worry about right now. Yeah, very true. When you're talking about consciousness, and it's so hard to describe it, and I couldn't even describe to you understanding, like from the human 
brain because I was just yeah. making the comment as that, oh, like AI doesn't understand and it's just a statistical probability. But then I started thinking about how do I define understanding for, for a human? Do I even understand or I just, my brain has worked out a pattern that based on the statistical probability of the English language that I'm speaking, the next word should be like how English is subject, verb, object kind of language. And I speak Hindi, which is uh, subject, uh -huh. object, verb. And so I have understood the statistical probability of what should come next and, and languages change over time as well, which we know. Do I even really understand? As well. I think we do. I think there is a definition of understanding. I think that you actually don't have to be conscious to understand stuff unless you want the experience of understanding. But I think understanding is like, what do you have to understand? I think like you have to understand some concept in a world, like what's on my, what's in my room here, like a bookshelf over there. Like I have to understand what it is, how it interacts with my world, how it interacts with other concepts that I know. And so that way it's okay. I have this mental map and it maps onto the physical world. And I have a, a good idea of how my, how my, my, my mental ontology of all my concepts map on my physical world is tested in the physical world. So I've used these concepts and used these words. It, it generally works for me because they align with reality. So isn't that and just so, data? Your mental map is just data from the past. Yeah. So yeah, isn't yeah. that like just you have learned from that data and you're applying it, just that it has taken a lot less data than a new LLM would take yeah. to, I, I think to the, make sense of it. Yeah, I think the difference is that the LLM is understanding different things. It's not really like it has no concept of how these words are associated with concept in the physical world that that, that we live in. And so I'm sure... Buried deep within those neural nets, there's some kind of ontology that you could get out of it if you were like super, if you were super willing to spend years and years going into that black box and trying to disentangle <laughs> what everything was. And you could probably get out some ontology that kind of makes sense in terms of what's going on in the real world. But its level of understand, it, it's it's understanding things on a different level. It's almost doing like understanding on top of the human language, which is meant to understand our world but then it doesn't really understand the world. So eh, I think it, yes, it understands certain things by my definition, but not in the same way a human can. Yeah, very true. For me, the difference is just from my thinking right now, it's humans take a lot less data to understand something, whereas the generative AI models take a lot more data to yeah. just find the statistical probability. It's just if you saw a completely different... You didn't even see a bookshelf, but you just saw like a ledge and stuff. And then you'd start stacking books there because it makes sense that, okay, this place right. can hold books and stuff. So you could do form that pattern very quickly without having to see 1 million different bookcases and 1 million different rooms and things like that to, to yeah. join two and two together. So that's something that AI cannot do. Yeah. And, and at that's, this stage. that's yes. because we have, a, a mental model of the physical world that we understand that the AI does not. And I think that's now look, if image processing, I'm sure deep Please. down it's starting to understand 3D space. What if then we build robots that could then manipulate 3D space? Maybe they'll get better and better at it. I don't know, but it's a long ways off before it's like it has this immediate understanding. It should be pretty cool, but yeah, um, it would be very cool, but I don't think we have we are there yet. And it would take yeah immense amount of processing power our mm -hmm. brain doesn't take that amount of processing power from the calories right. we take only 20 percent of our calories and stuff highly efficient so we are very long away from that having said all that do you have a ask is there anything you're looking for whether it's for new map or any other things feel free to share with the audience oh yeah definitely check out my podcast that i do weekly it's called the local maximum localmaxradio.com but really just go into your podcast app and type the local maximum and you will find it. I have guests. I have, I, I, I talk about all sorts of, it's basically whatever I feel like talking about that week, this, that week. So it could be philosophy. It could be copyright law. It could be, it could be what's going on with Twitter. What's like the, what's the latest news like Twitter, the company, or, or what's the tech news of the day, basically sometimes miscellaneous. And so Whenever I read a book, I usually invite the author on. I, I can't always make it happen, but that's a fun thing to do sometimes. And so that's a really fun podcast, especially if you're interested in the conversation that, that we just had about AI and philosophy. There's definitely some good 
good topics on good episodes on that. If you're interested in newmap.ai, you can definitely go to newmap.ai. It'll forward you to the GitHub and you see what we're working on. But if it's something that intrigues you, I'm happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, with anyone about it who wants to learn more because I'm, I'm at that phase where I'm, I am, I'm converting individuals. And of course, if you're working on something interesting, always happy to reach out. My podcast email yes. is localmaxradio at gmail.com. You could, you could reach out to me there basically anywhere on the internet. So <laughs> Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to listen to you. Fantastic. All right. I have just two more questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for <laughs> um, it. It's about, first one is about where do you see like the future of AI in the next five years? How would it have changed or, yeah. Hmm. Future of AI in the next five years. I've got to preface this by saying I would not have been great at predicting the previous five years. So I don't know if my views on that carry weight in the next five, but we often do predictions the local maximum. And I have, I, I do predictions a lot and try to keep up with what they are. I think in terms of generative AI, we're going to have kind of a, a I, I think the efficacy of the efficacy, is that a word? I think the effectiveness of these mm. systems are on an up and up path. I think we yeah. talk about search these days. Is Google better than it was five years ago? Some people will say, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Yeah, I think this is such a new, yeah, I think it's such a new technology that we're going to see it mature in ways that might surprise us, but in some ways that are going to be obvious, like they'll be integrated into a lot of the tools that we use. It'll be integrated into design, into art, into, into things like that. I think one interesting wild card that affects everyone in society is self-driving cars. Five years, I've always targeted the end of this decade as yeah. when there'll be a swap. And it was just, it's not based on some huge research project, but it was based on me and a few other people got together and said, okay, what's the rate of progress in self-driving cars? What sort of hurdles do we have to get around both technological and business and governments? Even for the last 10 years, we've always been targeting around the late 2020s, early 2030s. And so I, I feel like we're on track for that. And so that would be a really interesting shift because that changes how that's, that changes how we move around, which often yes. has very, which changes our cities, changes our towns. And so it's, so that will be very fascinating. But I also predict maybe on the negative side, although I don't think there'll be the, an end of the world event. So maybe I should bet someone. And then if indeed there is the end of the world, I would have <laughs> to pay them a certain amount. Uh, but I do think there could be another AI winter where sort of all the techniques that we've been throwing against the wall with these generative models and everything we've been working on now hits a maximum as to what it can achieve. And we need to go around that and research pressure needs to build elsewhere. So there might I be feel a time like that. AI, I, yeah. there's a, there's, that, that's not a big, it's just something to remember when there's the hype cycle. It's just part of life yes. and yes. five years seems like a, a good enough time period for that to happen. It's not going to be like, oh man, AI is toxic now. It, it'll be like, okay, it's not the hot new thing. It's there's people haven't been able to figure out as much about it as they did a few years ago. So people will be looking elsewhere for a time. What about programming in five years? Oof. It's very hard to disrupt programming. People have been programming for many decades now, arguably yes. like almost a hundred years. And yes. I... I think that I think that the, the only context that I have the only context that I have is like the advent of Google and Stack Overflow made us so much more efficient as well as IDEs and I think that the current assistive technologies are going to make us even more efficient. I think that the so-called no code or, or low code movement is going to increase, but I think there's still going to be like a lot of work. There's going to be an infinite is, is too big of a number, but there's going to be a large number of uh, a large amount of work that needs to be done to get all of these systems working together and to yes. work on the fringes where maybe I'm working on a specific use case or something on the cutting edge where the, where the technology can't really assist me that much. So I think, yeah. I think that's where I'm going to be. What's it going to be like being a new engineer? Uh, I don't know. I know it was a big struggle being a, a junior engineer. And so hopefully these assistive technologies can help get people up and running faster, but it might yes. also be a struggle that there'll be like only hard work to do, which, which could be rough. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true, but still so many tools and they need, you need to understand to make things work with each other, even 
developers are better at using no code than non-developers because they can still connect yeah. with so many more things. And if they come across a challenge, they are more able to solve that challenge. Whereas a com someone who has never touched code, they will get stuck or they will have to go to Upwork, Fiverr somewhere and hire yeah. someone. Exactly. And if I could be a little controversial here, yes, go ahead. to be controversial. I think for me personally, I would like to get back into a situation where I am working with someone else who is physically present on engineering. I think it's so much more fun. You learn so yes. much more. And during COVID, we threw all that out. And I am like trying to figure out how to get back to that. <laughs> oh, so, that uh, is so true. However, there is one exception to that. It's as your team grows larger and talent makes such a huge difference to any company. And then the amount of talent you can access just in your near geography is right. so limited to the 8 billion yeah. people and 80 million developers around the world that you can get the right fit with someone. And then maybe you move to a co-working space somewhere in Bali or somewhere where the living expense is one eighth of US. Yeah. And that's what has been happening over the last two years a lot that yeah. all these places have come up where co-working happens and no one saw that will happen around the world. Right. <laughs> that Yeah. If I could give a little context too, like, um, and I'm not saying it's good. I think it's good to have a distributed team, but it's good to have multiple people in, in, in each spot. Each spot. Yeah. Um, I used to write off pair programming at like yes. you know, 10, 15 years ago as, I don't know, it looks ridiculous, but I've tried it recently and man, I'm learning so many tools on how to integrate LLMs into everything that I do yes. and, into, and like, it asks you, why are you building it this way? It makes the building process more deliberative. And I'm like, oh, this is, this could actually be a, a, a lot of fun. So maybe that trend will come back. Some people might be happy about that. Some people won't. But, uh, <laughs> oh, it uh, will. I think so. It will come back in and it will have slightly different, it will appear in slightly different forms. And I also enjoy because also as humans, once again, goes on the philosophy side of things, we have a social need to connect yes. and, and work with people and Zoom can only do so much. So it, it is great to have that team. And then when you're down, that person can lift you. When you're stuck on a bug, they can help you. When they're stuck, you can help them and, agreed, and search agreed. together. So that that is so much value in that. But look, it, it's been a fascinating conversation and I can probably, we can yeah. talk for another hour. <laughs> let's let's finish for now and let's meet again in next few weeks and, and record a podcast for your show and i will put a link to your show and everywhere underneath in the description local maximum go and check it out really enjoyed this conversation with you thank you so much max perfect i enjoyed the conversation too sam it was really fascinating you got me thinking and you got me bringing a lot of themes together so i appreciate it Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening or watching this episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast. By now, you know the drill. Leave a comment or share this episode with a friend and leave a review. I would love to hear from you. So that's why my DMs are open. Reach out to me, especially if you are a founder building a product in Web3. Then I would love to hear from you. What are your challenges? Is there anything that I can help you or my community can help you with? Thank you once again and wish you best of luck in building your startup or your project.